As we read this passage this morning, I'd like us simply to reflect and think, how is God's goodness demonstrated to his people in this passage? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, our New Testament lesson this morning coming to us from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul's instructions to Timothy and how the church is to act and what it is that they are to do. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And now our sermon text this morning coming to us from Galatians chapter 5 as Paul has been writing to the church about the character that the Spirit works in the hearts of all who call upon the Lord in repentance and faith that the fruit produced by the Spirit includes goodness. And against such things as goodness, there is no law. Again, simply put, goodness is not against the law. Let's go before the Lord and pray for His blessing. Our gracious God and Father, we do pray that this morning You would cause us to slow down and to turn our hearts to Your Word to contemplate who you are and the things that you require of us, and that by the ministry of your word, you would so conform our hearts to the goodness of your Son that we might reflect his goodness to us, to those around us all of our days. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I remember when I was in elementary school, I was given a list of words that I had to take home and use a dictionary to define. Perhaps this is a practice that you had to do as a kid. And uh, I remember taking this old dusty dictionary in my uh, grandmother's apartment uh, and and getting the list of words they had to define. And they were very simple words. You know, I was uh, a young whippersnapper. Uh, I don't know, 16, 17. Um, never mind. Much younger than that. But one of the words was hill. What is a hill? And I think sometimes we think that, that there are these concepts, these words, that everybody knows what they are, so we never bother thinking of how to define them. Um, until somebody asks you, what is a hill? And you go, what's a hill? 
What else is there to say about it? And so I remember looking at the dictionary going, how would I, how do I define a hill? What do I write down? So I look up the, the, the dictionary meaning for hill and how does the dictionary define it? A small mountain. I go, okay, well, what's a mountain? So I flip over to the, to the, the latter portion of the dictionary, look up the definition for mountain. How is it defined? Mountain, a big hill. That's not helpful at all. You have these two words that seem to be mutually dependent upon one another that you cannot understand one concept apart from another. You cannot understand what a hill is unless you know what a mountain is. You cannot understand what a mountain is unless you know what a hill is. Well, I think we have something of a similar situation here before us this this morning. Um, We're reading through this litany of Paul's descriptors of the kind of character that the Spirit produces in our hearts, and we come across a word that sounds really familiar last week. It's like watching, you know, an episode of MacGyver. You see one episode, you've seen them all. And you you look at it and say, didn't we talk about this last week? Spirit produced, or the fruit produced by the Spirit is kindness, and now Paul says uh, some of that fruit is also goodness. Well, what's the difference? Is Paul simply being preacherly? Is he just kind of throwing around a long list of various words that sound real nice and fluffy? Or is he making a particular point here? So I think one of the things we have to consider this morning is what is the difference between kindness and goodness? But before we get there, I think I would, we would do well to stop and remember that Paul is not simply writing as a man under his own uh, inspiration. Here's a man who's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. So we do well to remember that even if kindness and goodness do end up meaning the same thing, the Spirit put it here in Holy Scripture for a purpose. To force us to slow down and consider that perhaps this virtue is more important than we really think it is. So I'd like us to take time to slow down and really wrestle with what it is that is going on here. I'd like us to do so by considering three things. First, we'll try to to, to define goodness, at least have a provisional definition. Second, I'd like us to describe goodness, doing what we do best, uh, going to the Scriptures and seeing what the Scripture says and describing the nature of goodness to us. And then finally, I think we would do well to consider the goodness of God as we have seen over the past few weeks that the purpose of the Spirit's work is to make us look like Christ. So ultimately, my goal as a pastor is to completely continue turning your attentions to Christ and the goodness that He provides to us. I think one of the difficulties that we find in some of these words, and I think you noticed it last week, is that goodness and kindness uh, seem to mean somewhat the same thing. Even if you look at a Greek uh, lexicon, you know, a, a dictionary that, that says this is how X word in the Greek New Testament should be translated, we find this particular problem. When you look at the word for kindness, as we saw last week, how can you translate it? Well, it could be def- to, uh, translated as either goodness or kindness. Same thing with this week. You look at kindness, how do you translate it? What well, could be translated as kindness, but it also be translated as goodness. Again, is Paul simply reiterating the same thing here, or is there a slight difference in meaning, even if the difference is not the distinction between apples and oranges, but a shade of meaning, looking at the same piece of fruit, as it were, uh, under a different light or from a different 
perspective. Or if you recall last week, kindness really highlights that, that, that tender temperament that we are to have towards others as we seek their welfare and well-being. It is a heart that is bent towards uh, seeking the well-being of others. Well, I think goodness highlights that same gracious disposition, for rather than focusing on the tender temperament, it focuses on the act itself. It, the emphasis here, I think, is on the moral integrity of what it is that one is seeking to do. It might do well for us to uh, slow down and, and help me describe and explain what I mean by that. I think goodness here attests to what we might call the well-integrated heart. When you speak of a product as having uh, good integrity, what does that mean? It means it has been put together well. It's been properly ordered. Uh, A a tractor uh, that has integrity is a tractor that's not going to fall apart on you after three mows, three uses. It is something that works Well, goodness here speaks of what we might call the well-integrated heart. Sin has ravaged the heart. This is Paul's doctrine of sin. This is Scripture's doctrine of sin. That sin has ravaged the human heart through and through. That our deeds are sinful. That our thoughts are sinful. That our desires have now been twisted and gnarled as they long for things that God has forbidden. How many of us know people who say one thing but mean something completely different? Goodness speaks to the person who has been made whole. There is a proper reordering of one's uh, moral composition where there's no dissonance between the heart and the mouth. There is no guile. There is no deceit. Why do I say it like this? Well, this is how Paul puts it when he writes to Timothy. He says this, he says that the aim of our charge, and here he's speaking of the goal of Christian instruction, is love. But it is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and in a sincere faith. See, goodness connotes this idea of wholeness or harmony, but one that accords with virtue, one that accords with doing what is right. This is how Paul puts it when he writes to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 5, 9. He says that the fruit of light, in other words, um, you you shine a flashlight um, on a particular thing and, and it exposes what needs to be taken care of. And Paul says, well, the fruit of light kind of a mixed metaphor there, but the fruit of light is found in all goodness and justice and truth. The purpose of the work of the Spirit as He shines the light on our hearts is to reorder the good soul. There's a a well-ordered character to goodness that the the well-ordered man, the man of good integrity, is a man who desires truth to prevail over falsehood and deceit. That this well-ordered character uh, uh, loves to see justice triumph over wickedness. This is how the Psalms describe goodness. Goodness is doing what is right. It's doing what is right as it accords with God's 
moral law, the Ten Commandments. It is something that seeks the well-being of the people of God. This is something that we have to remember, that the Ten Commandments were given for our good. Yes, it exposes our sin because it shows how much we as sinners hate what truly is good. But the law is given for the sake of the welfare and well-being of the people. Second Chronicles speaks. Second Chronicles uh, speaks of David's goodness, a goodness that is uh, uh, exemplified in his ensuring the welfare of the nation. And so if kindness expresses the manner of our disposition of hearts, our, that, that heart's disposition to seek the welfare and well-being of others, goodness focuses on uh, that act, the, the, more, the morality, the uprightness of the act itself, the moral quality of that disposition. And so we could speak of goodness as that well-integrated heart, the heart, the person that seeks to do what is right from the heart. Well, that maybe gives us a working definition. Hopefully I haven't uh, lost anybody yet. Um, But I think we would do well to see how Scripture describes what this goodness looks like. Again, my goal is not to give you a foreign definition, but to show that our attempt in describing these uh, virtues that Scripture gives to us are virtues and definitions that are in fact shaped by Scripture itself because it is God's Word that shapes the heart to look like Christ. So let's consider some descriptions of goodness. The first thing that we'll see in Scripture is that goodness begins with desire. It's not just the good act. It also begins with uh, the, the desires of the heart. Paul, uh, writing to the Church of Rome, says this, that he has the desire to do what is right and what is good, although he admits that apart from the Spirit, there is no good that dwells within him. Our Savior says the same thing in Matthew chapter 12, that there is a direct line between the heart and the mouth, that whatever it is that's festering in the heart will eventually bubble up and boil out of the mouth. Jesus says, from the mouth come all manner of gross evils, sexual immorality, lust, envy, maliciousness, anger, slander, gossip. The list goes on and on and on. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ, having died and risen from the dead, has ascended into heaven and has lavished His Spirit on His church. As the Spirit is given to renew our desires, to reorder that heart that has been disordered by sin. To call a man good says that his character has been properly reordered from the inside out. It's been conformed to the moral law of God in modesty and in speech, in hospitality and caring for the afflicted, according to 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 5. See, the purpose of God's law is to do good, to promote righteousness, that God says, this is the path that you should walk. What does goodness look like? Well, for starters, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. 
Only worship the Lord and Him only. Don't worship the Lord in a manner that He has not prescribed. Do not bear His name falsely. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. All these things were given for our good. Jesus Himself says, even considering the fourth commandment and remembering the Sabbath, why was the Sabbath given? Jesus says, so that you may learn to do good. That this would be the day where you learn to save lives rather than harming or killing them. So goodness begins with the heart. A heart that has been renewed and refreshed by the Spirit. If you're hearing, walk away hearing me say that, okay, you just need to try harder and be gooder, uh, you've missed the point. The point is that there is none good. There is no one who practices goodness or kindness. No, not one. And yet the Spirit has been given to so uh, put us on the path of doing what is right as God's moral will has been revealed to us. So goodness begins with desire, but it doesn't stop there. It's not simply the well-intended heart. James speaks of that, doesn't he? Somebody knocks on your door in the middle of the night and says, I need help, I need water, I need food, I need clothing. You go, ah, all right, well, I'll pray for you. (laughs) She slammed the door in their face. He meant well. But goodness does not simply begin with the desire. That's why G.K. Chesterton says the hardest thing, or the easiest thing is to think about doing good for somebody on the other side of the country. The hardest thing to do is to actually do good for your neighbor. Because you could think about how good of a person you are and having good thoughts, like Peter Pan, thinking happy thoughts about somebody you've never met before. But when you have your neighbor who uh, never keeps his lawn mowed, uh, who always ends up driving on part of your lawn, who plays the music too late at night, uh, who is just obnoxious and mean, you don't want to think about what it means to do good to him. All you really want to do is do bad. Paul says here, the goodness seeks the welfare of others. That includes generosity with one's resources. Think of Psalm chapter 68, where the psalmist acclaims the Lord as being good, that in your goodness, O God, you provide for the needy. Think of the whole fact that the Lord has instituted an entire office in this church to care for the needy, to care for the poor. What's the purpose of the diaconate to care for those even within our own four walls who, who hit a snag when something happens, when, when trouble uh, hits and befalls us? Here is an entire office, an entire ministry that's dedicated to doing good. You read Acts chapter 9, you have Dorcas, uh, a, a member of the church, and she's commended for her goodness, a goodness that is demonstrated in her acts of charity to others. See, goodness is that virtue that seeks to build up others. It consists in the pursuit of peace. Psalm 34 says, what man desires to see good? Well, here is the solution. Stop gossiping and pursue peace and reconciliation. Those are acts of goodness. Seeking the welfare of one's good name. Seeking a properly ordered relationship that has been fractured by sin. Doing good consists in blessing, not cursing those who hate you. Our Savior says. 
Goodness seeks the welfare of all around you. And this leads to the third major description we find in the Scriptures, that doing good is not restricted to doing good to those within these four walls. It actually means doing good for everyone, both those around us and those over us. What's striking is the amount of times that doing good is described uh, and characterized as the good we are to show as citizens of this earth, even doing good to those uh, in authority over us. Goodness makes a good citizen. Romans chapter 13, God has established the civil magistrate for our good, for our well-being, so that goodness consists in obedience to lawful rulers and authorities, Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 3. Goodness consists in seeking the good of both our brother and sister in Christ, but also our neighbor. Goodness It's the fourth characteristic consists in doing what is right, even if it means suffering for doing what is right. Peter puts it like this, to be subject to every human institution so that by such goodness, what is that goodness? How is that goodness characterized? It's characterized in being subject to every human institution. Paul says that by doing such goodness, by practicing such goodness, you would silence the ignorance of fools. I think one of the things that's striking when you read Calvin's Institutes, which is his kind of uh, book that was given to provide instruction to Christians in the religious faith, who's it dedicated to? He dedicates it to the king of France. Somewhat ironic because Calvin is a fugitive his entire life. He's a man who has fled France for Geneva because the king of France wants his head. Now, Calvin dedicates his whole work to the king of France, saying this, why are, you, why are you persecuting us? Our goal is to make the best citizens. Read what, we're, what our confession of faith is. It does not uh, differ from the rest of the church throughout history. Look at what it is that we confess, and look at our actions. We, we are enjoining upon our members of the church not to steal, cheat, murder, lie, to practice the good for the welfare of those around us and those over us. Why are you persecuting us? Justin Martyr makes the same argument uh, in uh, uh, the early church. Christians are to make the best citizens. This is a description of goodness according to the New Testament. This is what Paul tells Timothy. Pray for the nation. Pray for your civil authorities, those kings and rulers over you. Why? So that we might lead a quiet and peaceful life. And then Paul says what? He says, this is good. Goodness consists in praying for those political leaders over us, even the ones that we didn't vote for. There is a duty that we have to pray for those in office over us, whether we like their policies or not. I'm not saying that you have to like their policies. I'm not saying that you can't appeal to them, try to convince them to change their mind. I'm not saying that you can't vote them out of office. One of the great things about uh, I love about being in a uh, democratic republic is that we don't have uh, people in office who serve lifelong terms, but individuals who 
can be voted in and out. Those are things that we can encourage to do, but at the same time, there is a proper manner and dignity to praying for those people as they have been passed by God. Whether they believe it or not, whether they recognize it or not, the Lord says in Romans 13 that God has established them as ministers to Him. Ministers bearing the sword that the people might be protected So Christian goodness pursues uh, the welfare of society. It pursues the welfare of our community and even praying not only for those around us, but for those over us. Again, I'm not saying this to advocate any type of particular political position. Even, you know, whatever the political... This is a perennial sermon, as it were. You know, I would have to preach the same thing last year when we had a different political administration than we do under this political administration. Because this is what God's Word says we are to do. This is the practice of goodness. To seek to promote good conduct for the greater good of those around us. It is to be imitated as a great good, as it manifests that we belong to God. That's what Third John tells us. But again, I think if anyone has tried to comport themselves with the law, not just in outer deed, but even in our inner disposition, in desiring to do good, and in seeking the welfare of those around us, I think we all recognize how difficult that project is. That we cannot do good apart from the Spirit's gracious work in our hearts. In fact, the Bible tells us we cannot even understand what good is apart from God. Luke chapter 18, we cannot know to do good apart from God because there is none good but God. It's the very point Jesus makes to a man who walks up and says, good teacher. Jesus, whoa, whoa. What do you mean by good teacher? There's the dictionary question again. What is goodness? There is none good but God. Are you calling me God? What do you mean by what is good? See, Scripture resounds with this repeated acclaim, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. It is not simply that God is good, it is that He is most good. God is, in fact, goodness itself. See, God is not trying to act in line with some type of superior standard called goodness. God is His goodness. God Himself is the standard. All that is in God is God. God is His goodness. And so, by when we, when we speak of God's attributes in this manner, what we are saying, it is not as though God is only sometimes good, that He's good most of the time. Rather, that God is always good. God cannot be anything other than good. God's goodness is evidenced in His work as Creator as He looks on all that He has made in the creation week. And at the end of the week, He said what? Behold, it is very good. That the invisible God made the visible things to demonstrate His goodness that we might see His character in His outer works. Scripture attests to God's goodness not only as our Creator, but also as our Provider as He gives food, shelter, and clothing to the just and unjust alike as He seeks and pursues the welfare of His creation. 
God's justice evidences his goodness because he reckons with the wicked who seek to destroy the well-being of their neighbor. God's truth manifests his goodness as truth brings freedom, Jesus says in John chapter 8. It brings clarity. It cuts through the confusion and the darkness. We have to admit and confess that God is so good that it baffles not just the unbeliever, but it baffles the believer as well. See, sometimes we think that we have a proper understanding of what is good, and then sometimes we try to compare God to it, right? Something happens, well, why would God do this? I thought he was good. It turns out that we're trying to measure God by a different standard. But God is his goodness. The, the, the psalmist in Psalm chapter 73 begins by saying this. He says, surely, surely God is good to Israel. Surely he is good. But when I consider the wicked around me, it makes me ask. I nearly, I nearly stumbled. I nearly confessed that God was not good. Why? Because he's failed to understand what God, God's goodness really looks like. Because the Bible tells us that God's goodness is displayed in His patience with sinners. So that when we look around the world and we see all the wickedness and the gross and vile sins and we say, we thought God was good, you say, yes, God is good. And this His goodness is displayed even here. Because here He is exercising His patience towards sinners. Because He delights to see them repent. It is the goodness of God and His kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance. God's goodness is manifested in His long-suffering. His goodness is manifested on that last day when He returns as judge to reckon with evil. To say, okay, enough is enough. I gave you time to repent. But my goodness must retain its integrity. Goodness sums up what God has in store for His people in redemption. Hebrews calls Christ the high priest of the goodness that has come. That goodness that consists in the forgiveness of sins. Goodness sums up what God has done for His people in Christ's ministry as well as our high priest that attests that good things are still to come. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Christ was made the high priest of the good things that have not yet arrived. There's a greater goodness in store. A welfare for the people of God and a well-being for the people of God that we cannot imagine where there will come a day where the Lord will return and wipe away the tear from every eye. Such is His goodness to us. A goodness that has been supremely displayed at the cross. So that when the goodness and kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us not because we were good, but because He is good. By reckoning with our sins at the cross, so that we might receive not His wrath, but His mercy, so that by the working of the Spirit, we might be made whole. That we might have the well-integrated heart 
That Christ as the good shepherd would guard and keep us. That Christ as the good teacher would proclaim truth and bring freedom where confusion and bondage once reigned. Where Christ as our high priest has caused us to taste of God's goodness seen in the forgiveness of sins and found in the removal of our sin and shame. And that now Christ, having ascended on high, has given us His Spirit who works that same goodness in our hearts that we might show such goodness to those around us. Where our hearts and our actions conform with the goodness of God's law as we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves. First, by being good citizens of earth, seeking the common good of our community and society, but even more importantly, by being good citizens of heaven who attest to the goodness of God found in the pardon of sin, a pardon that is received through faith in Christ alone. As Paul puts it here, goodness is not against the law. And in fact, it's the way in which we begin to understand what it means to fulfill the law. To pursue goodness and to be rich in good works. To imitate our God and Savior. And to rest confident in this very thing that He who began this good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And that surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. Because we have a good and faithful shepherd. Let us pray.